Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19 is where we're at. Can you believe we're almost done? I mean, it's, it hasn't been that bad, right? <laughs> hasn't been that bad. Uh, I think... Um, I think the book of Revelation gets a bad rap for being difficult, but I think the difficulty comes from all the messes people have made with the book. (laughs) If you can block out the noise, it's not too bad to just kind of walk through it and go, okay, this is what this sounds like, and it works out all right. Uh, Chapter 19 brings us to the conclusion of what we have seen in the second section Uh, of this book with a judgment against uh, the beast and the false prophet being described. So uh, we'll look at uh, chapter 19. I think I'll read it in sections rather than the whole at once uh, since it's a pretty uh, lengthy chapter and uh, that'll give us a chance to kind of break down the pictures that we're seeing. Uh, So let's start with the first uh, five, five verses. Revelation chapter 19, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, uh, small and great. All right, so uh, you notice in verse 1 that we have this uh, rejoicing of this uh, great multitude. Uh, Have we seen that great multitude before? Where? Early on. on. (laughs) Seems like it's been a long time ago. (laughs) Uh, If you remember chapter 7, you had a picture of the sealing of the servants of God. And as the sealing of the servants of God is completed, it's around verse 10 or 11. Yep, verse 10 or 11. Uh, that the, the, the vision changes and you look into the throne room of God and it's this uh, countless multitude who are all before the throne of God. Uh, what is this great multitude uh, saying? What are they rejoicing about? What are they excited about? Oh, Debbie? Babylon. Yeah, Debbie? Uh, considering what happened before, the, the, uh, the Babylon was about to fall, uh, they're praising God for, for that. Yeah. Uh, Notice how it's how it's worded in verse one, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. Now, the book had opened like back in chapter six. And you remember you have the saints under the altar uh, crying out, well, how long until there's going to be vindication and and justice for for what has happened for the persecuting and killing uh, the people of God and. Uh, there were essentially two answers. One, wait a little while. This is always God's answer. Wait. Uh, judgment and justice are never immediate. You're going to have to wait. And two is going to be until the rest of uh, the servants of God who are uh, for the cause of Christ are, are, are killed. 
So you're seeing that here is that there is great rejoicing because now this judgment has has finally come. Uh, verse two, uh, judge the great prostitute. Where have we seen the great prostitute, and what was her description? Where was that in Revelation? Seventeen. At the end, of, most of seventeen is about the beast and this great prostitute who has on her forehead Babylon, the mother of all prostitutes. And if you're ever forgetting what she represents, the very last verse of chapter seventeen, the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion or rule over the kings of the earth. And if you're in the first century and you say, it's the great city that rules over all the kings of the earth, what's the great city in the first century in ruling? you got Rome, right? Rome's in charge, right? They're the, the that great power. And so here you have a rejoicing of the people of God uh, because this judgment has come against her. Verses 4 and 5, who else are rejoicing? Okay, so we saw the 24 elders and the four living creatures before, uh, and we, you know, solidly nailed down who they were, right? No. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> right, that's, I was spiritual beings. <laughs> We've got these spiritual beings around the throne room of God. What are they saying? Praising God also. So notice that this judgment is causing praise for the spiritual realm and praise of the people of God at the same time. Everybody's rejoicing that God's judgments uh, have been put in and that there is a vindication uh, of God's people. So the spiritual beings were looking for that. You even have uh, God's people, this great multitude. Uh, they were looking looking for that as as well. And that's what you have at the end of verse five. Uh, praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, uh, small and great. So, lots of big pictures about rejoicing. Notice how that continues in verse six. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Hallelujah for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All right. Verses Six through eight. Now what's happening? All right. Who's worshiping? Who's praising? Go back to verse six. Revelation 19, six. What's that? Okay, we're back to the great multitude again. They're cheering again. All right. So you you see the visual. Great multitude is is rejoicing because judgments have come in. Then we've. Look, and we see the spiritual realm with the 24 elders and the four living creatures. They're rejoicing. They're praising God. Back to the great multitude in verse 6. They're praising God. 
But I want you to notice that what they proclaim for praise now is a little bit different than in the first few verses. So tell me some of the things that they are saying now as they praise God. And I'll talk about some of that, April. All right, so one you have for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So we didn't talk about that for a minute because that's a curious thing to say, uh, especially to tie this to the fall of Rome, right? That's what they're rejoicing over. Judgment has come. The great prostitute has had judgment put against her. And so now... Hallelujah, let's rejoice, exult, give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Wouldn't you have said that that already happened? You say, well, the marriage of the Lamb came right when Christ came and he died and then he rose from the dead and ascended. Wasn't that the moment when all that took place and that was all settled and sealed? Why, Why would you have later on this proclamation that let's praise God because now the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready tied to this event. That's, I think, useful for us to explore for a few minutes and thinking about why this has anything to do with the marriage of the lamb and the bride being made ready. (laughs) It seems like a strange thing. Okay. And that doesn't really help. What does that mean? (laughs) That's my very point. So here's two of us with a problem. What in the world are we talking about right here? How can you have the marriage to the lamb and the bride being made ready all the way out here with the fall of the city of Rome? That doesn't make any sense. Thought all this stuff happened in Acts 2, right? And, and when Jesus rose from the dead and all of that. So how can this be saying what it's saying? Well, the world is happening here. You didn't know it was going to be hard this morning. You should have slept in, I know. <laughs> Dane, what do you think? So, this is where, again, showing, you know, how God brings judgment. Yep. And continues to show that he will be victorious in the end. So it's kind of a reminder that um, uh, there, all that persecution, the destruction that has come, there comes now the peace that people of God are looking for. Okay. And the, the mentality behind that is, is, although as we continue to read, we'll see that, blessed are the most that remain faithful through all of these, okay. they never fell away. Good. Okay, and I think that's tracking the right way, and I think some, some, of, some way to make this help is, is, is to kind of run this backward a little bit to try to get a sense of what this is talking about. <clears throat> You'll notice in verse 8, So it's granted to the bride, and she's been clothed in the fine linen, bright and pure, all right? And then the rest of that verse tells you what that represents. How has the bride made herself ready? With these righteous righteous deeds, all right? Well, in the book, what has that been depicting? How has the bride made herself ready and kept herself pure and the righteous deeds of the saints? Say that again. Okay. And they've been doing it for the cause of Christ, right? Uh, one of the big things that the book has been really driving at is don't participate in the immorality that is going on in the empire. 
Don't participate in the idolatrous worship that is going on. And that tracks all the way back to chapters 2 and 3, right? With the, the seven churches of Asia. You have these who have not been faithful. They have been participating in these idolatrous works. And judgment is going to come. And so this book has been a major call for the people of God not to submit to immorality, to false worship, to the idol worship, to the emperor worship. We saw that like in chapter 13 where the beast is trying to get everybody to worship it and to give glory to it and to give allegiance to it. And you've repeatedly had in the book these statements of here's a call for endurance. You're going to suffer. You're going to die. You're going to be persecuted. But don't bend the knee. Don't participate in those in those things. So to me, that makes a lot of sense of what this is talking about. And the idea of this marriage feast and the marriage of the lamb and the bride. Sometimes we think about it only in terms of the singular point in time. But it is always a call for the people of God to make themselves ready to be joined to, to the lamb. And here is a picture of how they had to do that. They were not to worship anything false and participate in morality, but instead they were going to keep themselves pure, serve God, be faithful to him. And in doing so, it's depicting that you now have a right to be joined with God. You have a relationship with him. You have made yourself ready and can enjoy the spoils, if you will, of the victory that's going to be depicted here at the end of chapter of chapter 19. So I want us to kind of get a feel of Sometimes we kind of just get stuck in like Acts 2 and go, okay, well, that was the end of the game. But the call was for the people of God now to make themselves ready. The, 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 the lamb has come, but are you making yourself ready to be joined to him, to be a, a, the faithful bride? And, and so here it's using that kind of imagery. Yeah. Another thing is with the destruction of Rome, the Roman Empire, the great persecutor of all the Sure. Yeah, well, and you're having the, a picture of the people of God who have endured through that whole time frame and have stayed faithful to God. And I want you to notice that to me, that is the explanation of verses nine and ten. Do you, do you find verses nine and ten a little bit strange? <laughs> you know, uh and so here's the, 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 the call, faithful and true. And here's John. I fell down to worship and the angel goes, no, don't do that. Worship God. And you go, John, did you lose your mind for a minute? And why is that recorded? And what's that doing here, Dane? Sometimes a trap that Revelation does is we forget when the book started, John said, these are things that will shortly come. Right. So the book... What we're reading here is talking about things that will happen. That's right. We're sitting 2,000 plus years later and we're thinking, it's like, oh yeah, all this is just like. So you're imagining and you're putting a lot of context back to Acts 2, but if you have to go back to Revelation 1, sit yeah. there yeah. and then go forward with the book. Yeah, so absolutely. You go forward with the book, you start to notice it's like, hey, listen, I can fall into that very same trap. Right. I can be sitting here as a Christian yeah. and then seeing all the glory of the United States of America. Sure. And everything that is there, it's kind of the fiction that is being set of Rome. Mm -hmm. And you fall to that temptation and you forget that this is God in the works. Yeah. And you start praising the creation rather than the creator right. and fall away. And that's what's happening in, in the Revelation. So yeah. the essence is, is if you avoid those temptations, you stay faithful and true. You do 
not participate in the strong temptation that is coming here to call, go away to idolatry, the Roman type of idolatry, yeah. now you have the ability to see God's yeah. victory coming towards the end exactly. and you can participate in this victorious reign that comes afterwards. That's right. And when you when you see this thread of a of a warning uh, and call for the people of God to not worship the beast or to worship the, the woman or to worship these idols or to participate in those things. Uh, verses 9 and 10 of, of this chapter really kind of give you a visual of that. Why record this little scene about John being told, I don't even want you to worship an angel. <laughs> worship God. Well, because that's the big deal of this book is you're going to be tempted to worship anything but God in the midst of all of this. Don't do it. You can almost feel like this was the Apostle Paul from Galatians. I don't care if an angel tells you true words. You don't bow down and worship it either. You don't worship the beast. You don't worship the emperor. You don't worship the idols. You don't worship the pagan gods. You don't worship anything but God and God alone. And to me, that's doing a capstone right here with, with, with that. How have they made themselves ready for the marriage to the lamb? They didn't worship anybody but God. They didn't give themselves or devote themselves to anybody else or anything else but God. And this is kind of, I think, just putting that visual forward with John. Why record John doing this except to say, even John's hearing the message. Don't worship anybody or anything but God alone. Because that is what the call for the people of God was to do. Don't bow down. Don't give allegiance. Julie? Well, It is. And you can imagine how this would have sounded and what this would have looked like because you have back in verse 8 that you are clothed with these fine linens bright and pure well okay so this is a contrast to being stained by worshiping sinful things and worshiping the, these various uh, gods and, and all of that which was so prevalent in the empire we, we, we talked about that back in chapter 13 of put a picture on the screen of all the idols and all that was going on in those given cities. It's hard for us to get our minds around how strong that temptation would have been because it's all around the city. And so here is that reminder of that and showing here are the ones who are blessed. Here are the ones who can be joined to Christ. Here are the ones that are going to enjoy the reward. They have not submitted to that kind of false worship, but remain devoted to Christ and Christ alone. Like, Weddings in general, culminate, you know, weddings occur because there's a culmination of events and dedications and vows and devotions that happen all the way up to the point of the actual ceremony. Mm-hmm. And then the little bit of witness. And then there's a, a reward that happens you can, you know, human sense, you, you, you get a spouse. And it's also the beginning of new things. So mm-hmm. it's the end of something, but the beginning of something new. Right. Yeah, and you could you could draw this to so therefore the the work of Christ was to establish this invitation to invite people to come and enjoy the marriage feast, which you might remember even tells a parable along those lines, 
And now how does one respond? And this is what a response looks like, is you can't give yourself over to the culture of the world. It's not going to work and remain faithful uh, to Christ. All right, you good with that for you now? Look at this, this other big visual in chapter 19. Uh, yeah, Dane. You know, in all of this, can you imagine seeing people are still preaching the gospel? Yeah. They're still teaching people about Jesus. Yeah. You know, in the midst of seeing, look at the temple of the temples that the Romans are building. Yeah. I mean, the, the grandness of it, and these kind of things. Yeah. And they're still teaching the gospel. That's right. And whoever submits to that, that then comes and says, God is greater. That's right. And stay faithful. Yeah. And worship God! Exclamation point. Mm-hmm. Despite all of this. Yes. In spite of all that was going on. And it, it helps color when you read 1 Corinthians and you have three chapters there from chapters 8 through 10 talking about avoiding idolatry and what that all means and why you can't submit to that and what that looks like and because that was the air they breathed and what the culture was all about. And uh, yeah, you can imagine them running around saying, stay faithful to God, don't submit to those things, don't, don't give in to it, even though everybody is, even though the whole world at that time is. All right, look at verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse, one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire on his head or many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, and white and pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule with them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who is in the pre- who is in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. I mean, that's just bedtime stories right there. That's good stuff. I mean, <laughs> uh, beautiful imagery there. And uh, as much as that might be a little jarring to read, uh, that imagery actually happens a couple of times in, in scriptures beforehand up to this point. So we'll kind of make some connections to that. Let's let's talk about who we are seeing here. Verse 11, heaven opens and we have one that is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and and makes war. So you have an image that Christ is ultimately the one who is going to war and is uh, doing the conquering and, and giving the victory uh, to his, his people. You might remember verse 12 from all the way back to chapter 1. His eyes are a flame fire that... 
We're connecting all the way back to that first description where we saw one like the Son of Man and how he was dressed and all that was uh, described of, of, of him. One of the things that's particularly interesting is verse 12 because it says, On his head were many diadems. And sometimes it's hard to know um, when to make much of things and when not to make much of things. It is unusual, though, to me that... It doesn't say he's wearing crowns, but he's wearing diadems. And the reason why I, I find that fascinating is because the beast was described as, as wearing diadems. And you kind of go, well, why now is Christ depicted as wearing diadems versus crowns? And we've seen crowns before. We've seen the living creatures are throwing their crowns. So we, we've seen that word used. Um, Debbie? Has crowns, yeah. Yeah, some translations will just go ahead and read it as, as crowns. It is a different different word there. I wonder if there's not a connection to describe essentially what this faithful and true witness riding on the white horse has done. Is he has conquered the beast, taken his diadems and put it on his own head and said, there you go. <laughs> Uh, I think that's the, the, the visual here because those are the only places where we have diadems versus crowns being, being used. So it's, it's an interesting picture here that it almost seems to be indicating that it's not just simply, hey, I have all authority, but I'm conquering and taking their authority. I'm, I'm seizing them and I'm, I'm ruling and in charge as, as well. So uh, ver, verse 12 seems to, to give that picture as well. Uh, verse 13, his robe is uh, dipped in blood. And if we weren't sure who this figure was in verse 13, he's called the, the word of God. He's riding in with heaven's armies. And in verse 15 really makes it strong. He has a sharp sword coming from his mouth. We saw that in chapter one. And it also says that he is ruling the, the nations with a rod of iron. That's your Psalm 2 big messianic prophecy that that's given right here so what you're getting in this is just a probably this the strongest visual to see here comes the messiah here comes the reigning king here is the one in fact he's called at the end of verse 16 king of kings and lord of lords but i want you to notice what's described that he's doing after all of these adjectives about him his action there in the uh, end of verse 15, as it says there, he will tread the right winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. <laughs> That's the image of treading down the winepress. Now we saw that back in chapter 14 where we saw the sickle being going through the earth and the earth is reaped. They're thrown into the winepress and so judgment is being depicted uh, even in, in that sequence as well. You have a picture of Christ who is ready to judge. And apparently he's already judging because even though he's wearing white robes, what's on his white robes? Blood is red. So he's trampling out already. This has its connection way on back in, in, in Isaiah. And I think I've got that up here for you guys somewhere. Well... Or maybe not. Hmm. Well, while I'm trying to find it on the screen, it's Isaiah 63. While this slides in, I want you to look at Isaiah 63. <clears throat> oh, there it is. Look at it back there in Egyptian blood. Got all excited about all these descriptions and skipped right over. There it is. 
Isaiah 63, notice the similarity of the description. And there's this question about who's doing all of this. Uh, Isaiah 63, verse 1, who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Bozrah, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? Imagine this, this imagery of this victorious rider coming in and all of his Splendor, but it says that his his even though he's his apparel is glorious, his garments are crimson. All right, and notice the end of verse one. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. You can kind of go, okay, here is the Lord coming to rescue. Verse two. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads out the winepress? <laughs> I love the interactions. Who is this that's coming? It is I. I've come to save. Why are your clothes all red? Verse verse 3. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger. I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all of my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, and there was no one to help. I was appalled, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. I I love that picture. You're like, okay, you got problems. But no, really, if you look at the picture, though, here Here is this picture of God coming in and it says, why are you here? And notice that verse one is, I'm here to save. I'm coming in righteousness, mighty to save. Well, then why is your clothing all red? And it's a description of, well, I've trampled them down in my wrath. But notice the explanation of that that's given in verse five, because after verse four, he says, it's the day of vengeance and the year of redemption. But verse five, I looked and there was no one to help. There's this visual of God looking at his people and seeing the terror and the oppression of the world against his people. And he's looking and saying, I've come to save. And I looked around to see if anybody was going to rescue my people. And I saw that there was none. So I did it. I trampled them down in my wrath. I brought judgment. I was the rescuer of my people and I put in the vengeance that needed to happen to save my people. That's the imagery that Isaiah is giving and it's the same imagery that's given in Revelation 19. What is all the multitude shouting and rejoicing and crying out about? Vindication. You have finally dealt with our enemies. You have done what you promised. You have brought judgment. You brought wrath against those who were killing us and oppressing us and harming us. And so here he comes riding in in all of his glory. But he's covered in blood because he's brought the judgment that needs to happen. Charlotte? I think we all take it all the way back to Genesis. Genesis 49 where he's talking about Judah. But he talks about how he washed his clothes and the blood and the it's the same visual of victory. Yeah, you have in, in, in Genesis 49 already that kind of visual of 
prophetically looking at what the Messiah would ultimately do, one of the things about God saving his people is bringing judgment on those who hurt God's people. Sometimes we, we miss that idea. We think of you know, salvation as merely a spiritual concept, but is also a bigger concept than that of those who kill and harm the people of God. God has to judge. He has to do something about this. He is going to vindicate. He is going to be righteous. He is going to accomplish true judgments. And that's what the people of God are always looking for. Why do we long for the Lord to return? It's not just merely, you know, get us out of here. We want things to be put to right. We want justice. We want evil to be dealt with. We want righteousness to be rewarded. We want things put to right because right now it's all upside down. And God's saying, that's what I'm going to do. I'm coming in and I'm coming in with my armies and I'm treading the wine press and I am destroying those who are the causes of evil and who harm my people. That's what chapter 19 is driving at, Dane. I think it was about the day final He does. And it's good for us to remember all of these scriptures that helps us appreciate that. Listen, be patient. Mm-hmm. When he tells us, do not avenge yourself, because your vengeance will never bring about his righteousness. That's right. His vengeance will bring about his righteousness okay. and your vindication. Exactly. So at the end of the day, it's good for us to see these things. And again, I guess going back to Revelation, these people, they're getting to see that. They're getting a vision that, like, this will happen. It happened back in the Old Testament. Yes. It will happen. Keeps happening. Just be patient. That's right. God doesn't change on that. You have back when the Assyrian Empire is in charge and they're the ones causing trouble to the people of God and the people like Jonah and Nahum are not thrilled about it and the message is you got to wait and God judges and then Babylon becomes the great power and they're also oppressing the people of God. And you have people like Habakkuk going, what's going on around here? You're going to do something about this. And again, God's message is the righteous live by faith. You're going to trust me. You got to wait for me. I'm going to do something about it. And whether it was going to be then Persia or Greece or Rome, whoever is the people that is persecuting the people of God, there is a long time waiting as there is the attempt of repentance. Remember what we saw repeatedly? But they did not repent, but they did not repent, but they did not repent. Keeps being stated through the book. And then finally, God acts in judgment. And so chapter 19 is is the, the culmination of that. Now, I want you to, to up that picture a little bit more because verses, verse 17 to the end of the chapter 
is not only just describing God bringing judgment against Rome and this great prostitute and the kings of the earth, as verse 19, the beasts and the kings of the earth, but this is an image that's as grotesque as it can sound. You know, here, come for the great supper of the Lord, and here's the birds all eating the flesh of the kings of the earth. And you kind of go, <laughs> what's, what's going on with all of that? But that is imagery that that God uses to always describe how he is going to deal with those nations that stand against God. Um, I probably don't have time to redo that whole Gog and Magog sermon. That was chapters Ezekiel 38 and 39 that we did on Sunday night um, uh, just a couple of months ago. Uh, But one of the messages that I want to remind you of from Ezekiel 39, and you can check those verses there about Gog and Magog, was you had it stated that God was using the world power and it was causing oppression against God's people so that God could then turn around and judge that nation for its wickedness. And that's what's happening here is Rome has turned against God and turned against his people. And so the same visual of a great supper and the birds gorging the flesh, it's the same visual that comes from, from, from Gog and Magog. Now, this also connects back to Armageddon. We talked about that back in chapter 16. In chapter 16, it said all the kings of the earth were all gathering together at the place called Armageddon. They're going to make war against, against the land. Did you see how that plays out here? You'll notice in uh, verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with all of their armies gathered to make war against him who is sitting on the horse and against his army. Now, look at the next two verses and tell me the result of that whole big battle and how it all goes down. Yeah. You know, the next verse is not, you know, and then there was a seven year period and there's a whole lot of chaos and things are going to be nasty and, you're, you know, it's going to be really bad. It's just God going, <laughs> you're going to fight against me, you lose. <laughs> there's no picture in Revelation where Armageddon is described as this lengthy battle of the forces of evil, and the forces of good and Here we are on the sidelines going, boy, I wonder how it's going to play out as all the years go by. A lot of revelation material tries to depict it that way. You know, it's it's going to be this whole amassing and the the world's going to stand against God. It's going to be this whole, you know, chaotic thing. And it's going to be all the very next verse is the beast was captured and the false prophet. And they're cast in the lake of fire. (laughs) It's like. There's almost this imagery of, let me make it really easy. They're all going to gather into this one place so that God can just go, you're judged. It's over. You're done. It's not a battle. It's, it's, it's God just going, I win. It's over. You know, sometimes we, we visualize it as if, you know, there's this cosmic battle going on and we're st- still trying to await the outcome and you need to be on the right side of all this. It's already over. It's already been waged. It's already done. Uh, the battle's over with because Christ just goes, I win. <laughs> I have all the authority. I don't know. I kind of visualize it like if, if you were a, 
a father and you had your young boy and you like to like wrestle and play around with your, your kid and you let them pretend for a minute like they have the upper hand and when they start thinking like they're getting somewhere, you just go, pin, I win. You know, like, you didn't have a chance. I was just letting you enjoy yourself for a moment, you know. That's all God's doing here is going, I'm just giving you a chance just to think you've got something. You know, amass your armies and watch this. Over. And that's what's being described here. They're cast in the lake of fire. The rest are slain. Uh, the, the, the big visual here is that no one is getting away with what they've done against God or his people. There's no one running away going, all right, well, we're going to, it's over. And to me, one of the really important messages then of chapter 19 is this is why you're not swept away with current events or present nations or world powers or anything that goes on in the world. Because all God is doing is letting them wrestle for a second until he pins them and goes, that's it. He lets them go until he's done. And when he says, that's it, that's it. And they can think they're getting all ready for battle and they're going to win and all amass at Armageddon and have this big battle. And God goes, no, it's, it, it, it's over, Julie. right you remember chapter 16 you could basically sum up they had their chance god was bringing partial judgments and warnings if i can use jonah to get the people's eyes upward to pay attention he's throwing storms at him left and right plagues is the terms he uses and it kept saying but they did not repent and since they did not listen now it's too late now judgment has been put in. So that's exactly right. You're here at chapter 19, and it's not like they didn't have their opportunity. The whole of chapter 16 was their opportunity, and it's kept saying they did not repent of their evil that they had done. And so now finally justice has to come. So they have their opportunity, and God always gives opportunity. But eventually there has to be justice. Something has to give, Dane. Piggyback off of that, and you may have covered it, I was in here, but the mark of the beast. You know, people are still looking for a physical mark. Yeah. You know, the, the movie, The Omen, you know, these kind of things, people are still looking for physical yeah. mark 666 or the race or that kind of stuff. It is important, to just tie off what you said, it is important to recognize it's not, this was all literal. This yeah. is not a physical right. mark. It's who you became. Yeah. You became an idol yeah. worshiper. You became a Rome worshiper. You became. You became that sort of person that did not worship God. That's right. So there goes your chance for repentance. Right. And in essence, there goes 
your destruction. That's right. So this is where it, it, it is sad that, you know, took so many times that there's so much false teaching on Revelation, and to see so many other people get caught up with that, and yeah. that whole literal, physical looking for 666, and I'm thinking it's like, this is wrong, yeah. that's the wrong way to be thinking about this. You're selling your soul yeah. when you worship anything but God. Yeah, it, that's what identifies you like that. Exactly. And that's where you even lose vision to the path to repentance. Not God did that to you, you're doing that to yourself. It's funny how those numbers have, are like, you know, burned in infamy now. I think it was Debbie that like showed me an article like there was some bus line that somehow randomly ended up with a 666 number and everybody absolutely freaked out and had to change the number of it because you know this is the bus that's going to go to eternal torment if we if we get get on it you know it's going to explode with fire or something it, it chapter 13 is a, is a contrast you are either have are sealed and marked by god and a follower of him or you are sealed and marked by the beast and a follower of it that's all that was doing is trying to get people to understand you belong in one camp or another. You're making a choice and you've been given the chance to repent. So do you belong to God and you're going to be found vindicated though suffering now? Or are you belonging to the beast and you're going to experience eternal punishment because you went along with the culture and went along with the way of the world? That, that's all that was doing. Debbie? What, what particularly bothered me about that article was that Yeah, they don't even understand. Uh, I, I will ride a six 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 bus anytime. It's fine. <laughs> it's, it's all a symbol, you know. If anything, maybe just help people realize. Yeah, if you're so concerned about that, you should consider your life before God. <laughs> you know, because that's what's going to matter, Evan. <laughs> That's right. Prophecy was all about here is the voice of God to get your life to turn back to God before it's too late. And uh, verse nine describes that. All right. So uh, one final hurdle, chapter 20 next week, right? Chapter 20 is the binding of Satan of the thousand years. And I want you to look at all of that. I don't know if we'll get far enough, maybe not, but I do want you to th- Pay attention to verse 7 because it does say then Satan will be released after the thousand years. So that's kind of fun to think about. Uh, What in the world is that talking about? That's what we're going to have to look at next week. So we'll look at chapter 20 uh, next week. 14-minute break. Reconvene at 1030 for our next hour. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate your comments and your observations.